Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter, therefore, went forth, and the other disciple. And they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. It was Easter Sunday morning, and the tomb was empty. John had been at the cross. He had been there when the sky went dark at noon. He had heard Jesus cry out, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He was there as the earth shook and the centurion charged with the crucifixion, declared, truly this man was the Son of God. He may have even heard that the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, keeping everyone but the high priest cut off from the presence of God, had torn in two from the top to the bottom. He must have known that rocks split that tombs had opened at the moment of Jesus' death. He had been there. When the heavenly lights came back on after three hours of darkness, and he had heard Jesus declare on more than one occasion that he would be killed and would then be raised up on the third day. It was now the third day, and the tomb was empty. John was there, but he lacked the confidence to enter into that holy place. If we read further, we discover that Peter didn't hesitate. When he got to the tomb, he went right on in. What would you have done? Would you have hesitated? Well, obviously, you weren't given a chance to enter the tomb. But are you hesitant now to enter the holy place that has been opened to you? The author of Hebrews has spent nine and a half chapters laying the theological foundation that makes clear that it is now possible to enter into a place even more holy than an empty tomb. You've been given the opportunity to enter into the very presence of God. But have you done so? It's time to put your faith into action. And our author calls us to action as he continues in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 21. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence 
to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he goes on to say, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us stimulate one another to action. Yes, we've come to some more spiritual lettuce in Hebrews. Now, you'll get more lettuce in the NIV than we do in the New American Standard. But the three let us phrases in the New American Standard are the exhortations in the Greek text. And it's those exhortations we're going to focus on this morning. But before we get to them, we're reminded what it is that enables us to confidently draw near, hold fast, and stimulate one another to action. Our confidence is based on what Jesus did and is now doing for us. He's the one who gives us confidence to come before God, knowing we are acceptable in His sight. Knowing our sins have been forgiven, that we've been washed clean. That the veil that kept us separated from a holy God has been removed through the sacrifice of Christ's own flesh and blood. And not only did Jesus make it possible for us to enter into God's presence, He personally escorts us into that holy place, asking or acting as a high priest, a bridge builder, bringing God and man together. And because of that, we can have confidence to draw near. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, coming into the presence of Almighty God can be a very frightening thing. In the Old Testament, most responded by falling to the ground and hiding their face. We no longer have to do that. Because of Christ, we can come into the presence of God with confidence. At least we can if our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Under the Old Covenant, persons and things were cleansed through the ceremonial sprinkling of the blood of animals. Under the New, we had been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience through the blood of Jesus. If we've expressed faith in the cleansing power of His blood, our sins are forgiven and our conscience is therefore clean. And we express our faith in the cleansing power of His blood by allowing our bodies to be washed with pure water in Christian baptism. For as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.21, baptism now saves you. 
not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If in faith you have done what he's instructed you to do, you can have confidence to draw near to him with a sincere heart in full assurance. You can come into that holy place. If you haven't done as instructed, why do you hesitate? Don't stay on the outside looking in. Have your heart sprinkled clean by allowing your body to be washed. It will give you the confidence needed to come boldly into God's holy presence. If you will confess your faith in what Christ accomplished through His death, burial, and resurrection, by sharing symbolically in His death, burial, and resurrection, you will be given the confidence to draw near and the confidence to hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, we'll be introduced to the roll call of faith with these words. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We'll explore that definition in depth when we get to it. But for now, I simply want to call your attention to the fact that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And it is our hope that enables us to hold fast to our faith. If our hope for the future was dependent on what we did in the present, hope for most of us would be shaky at best. And if our hope for eternal life was based on our personal performance, we would all be doomed. But because of Christ, our hope is sure. It's based on what He did, not what we do. That hope will obviously affect what we do, but the hope comes before the doing, not after it. Paul expressed the relationship between hope and the lives we live when writing to a young preacher named Titus. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We can hold fast to our faith and live godly lives as long as our hope is secure. And our hope has been made sure by the death, 
burial, and resurrection of God's own Son. It can't be made more secure than that. Christ died and rose again to assure us that He has the power and the will to do all that He's promised to do. If we believe that enough to stake our eternal life on it, surely we will also have the confidence to stimulate one another to action. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. I can think of nothing more heartbreaking than to enter into the presence of God alone. I certainly long for the day that I will see Him face to face, but I don't want His face to be the only face I see on that day. Christ did on the cross was for me, but it wasn't for me alone. It was for all who would acknowledge their sin and the need to be forgiven. It was for all who would accept the gift of grace offered through the life and death of Jesus. It was for all who would allow themselves to be adopted back into the family of God and thereby become my brothers and sisters. And as brothers and sisters, we have an obligation to each other. The obligation to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And this we do primarily by assembling together. We come together in worship, in praise, in study. We gather around the table of remembrance our Lord has established for us. We fellowship together and encourage one another. It's not easy living lives that honor our Lord. It never has been. Since sin first entered the world, it's been a struggle to remain faithful to our Creator. That's why we do it together as the body of Christ and not simply as a loose collection of individuals. That's why it's imperative that we take seriously the obligation to encourage one another to openly express love for our Lord and for each other. That's why we must work together, stimulating one another to good deeds. And that's why we must not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. If you would confidently enter into the presence of God, you must make it a habit of entering into this place. Not that this is a holy place, as was the tabernacle, but that this is a place where holy people gather to encourage one another to live holy lives. In his commentary on Hebrews, James Moffat wrote these words. Any early Christian 
who attempted to live like a pious particle without the support of the community ran serious risk in an age when there was no public opinion to support him. It's rather obvious that public opinion doesn't support Christian behavior today either. That's why we need to get together and stimulate one another, stir up one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds. The word used here for stimulate was usually used in a negative sense as an irritation. So we shouldn't be afraid to irritate one another. To say and do things that might make a brother or sister uncomfortable. We shouldn't be afraid to ask someone where they've been if we haven't seen them in worship for a while. We shouldn't be afraid to mention that we've been missing them in Bible study or ask why their kids haven't been staying for Sunday school. And that means we not only come to church to worship, but that we come to church on a mission. We come thinking about our brothers and sisters. We come looking for them. We come seeking opportunities to minister to them. We come willing to lovingly confront if it's needed. And we always come seeking to encourage one another. We come hoping that our presence, our singing, our praying, the smile on our face, the handshake, the hug, will make a difference to someone. That it will encourage someone. We don't just come to church for ourselves to be ministered to. We come for each other to minister to one another. We gather on Sunday to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We come together to prepare each other to go out into the world confident that we can make a difference. And our confidence is building every day because every day we are one day closer to having our faith validated by the return of Christ. So we live confidently in the presence of God, holding fast to our faith, ministering to one another. We live with a confidence made possible by the risen Christ and encouraged by the body of Christ in which we fellowship. If you are here today, it's my prayer that you have the confidence to join with us in singing when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. We all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory. If you lack that confidence, I invite you to come and have your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your body washed 
with pure water.